Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, March 11th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, March 14th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? It's going all right, Teresa. And that's oh, that's oh. Layla, who decided to join us today. Okay, so... It sounds like Layla is saying it's a, it's a good day today. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. You know, she's got she's always got to make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she know she hears you talking to somebody, so she's like, "Well, I want to talk too." <laughs> okay, so this week we'll be talking about uh, protests about workers' rights in New York City, the latest discovery of glowing shark species. That should be fun protest in Senegal and the latest updates on the Derek Chauvin case. So let's go ahead and kick off our episode with our local news. Emily, please get us started. All right. So this story comes from a March 8th AM New York article by Dean Moses titled No More 24. Protesters demand Cuomo end round the clock workday for home care workers. The article explains, quote, <clears throat> On International Women's Day Monday, protesters rallied at the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire site, demanding an end to 24-hour workdays that thousands of home care workers have been enduring in New York throughout the COVID-19 pandemic through the I Ain't, Ain't I a Woman campaign. Sorry, it's called the Ain't I a Woman campaign. I just wanted to correct that. Um, over 100, oh, quote, over 100 multiracial New Yorkers gathered in the street and sidewalk to make their voices heard and stand in solidarity with the female home care workers, many of them immigrants and women of color, who have been putting their lives at risk working long hours caring for the elderly, disabled, and severely ill. The pandemic has exacerbated their struggle and isolated them during a time when they had to leave the safety of their families in order to work. Many speakers pushed for elected officials to support legislation that will require those who work 24-hour jobs to be able to have non-sequential split shifts. Protesters shared that these home care workers are given two choices, work the 24-hour shift or do not have a job. The article also notes that, quote, in addition, only the 13 hours of the 24-hour shift is paid. And I, that was like very shocking to read. I had never heard that that would be the case. Um, I actually found some more information about what that specifically means in a 2019 article on homehealthcarenews.com by Bailey Bryant. Uh, the article refers to it as New York's 13-hour care rule and explains, quote, the rule, which was recently the focus of a contentious lawsuit, says that a caregiver on a 24-hour shift only has to be paid for 13 hours of work. The catch is that the, on, the rule only applies if the employee is given breaks of three hours total for meals and eight hours for sleep, five of which must be uninterrupted. Throughout the past several years, a slew of home-based care workers have sued over that rule, arguing that they should be entitled to 24 hours of pay while working a 24-hour shift, and I wholeheartedly agree. And that is me commenting. Um so Bob Engels of the Democratic Socialists of America spoke to the crowd um, back at now we're back at the uh, Women's Day protest and said, quote, on this beautiful International Women's Day, we come to honor our sisters, our special group of sisters who give from themselves to the most vulnerable section of New York. Their patients, elderly, need their care 24 hours a day. 
they feed them, they bathe them, they take their, they take temperatures, they check oxygen, they do whatever they have to do in a caring, loving way for our most vulnerable. End quote. Um, he is paraphrased as saying that the job is stressful mentally and physically, and many are doing their 24-hour shifts with no breaks, and they are not being paid fairly. He said, quote, this is inhumane and shameful. So there are currently two bills in the state legislature aiming to correct these wrongs. Uh, Assembly Bill A-3145A, which, quote, requires the provision of care to persons requiring 24 hours of care take the form of non-sequential split shifts of 12 hours each. Um, and that is directly from nysenate.gov. And the other is Senate Bill S-359, which, quote, requires home care aid over time to be voluntary. If you're a New York resident, you can probably get in touch with your local representative to encourage them to support the bills. So um, I didn't know anything about the uh, world of home health care workers, and I didn't see the story reported anywhere else, so I wanted to bring some attention to it. And um, one last additional note in from the story, or that's mentioned in the story. So the site for the protest was specifically chosen because of its infamous place in the history of abusive workplaces. Uh, as a quick refresher from history.com, in 1911, 145 workers, I've also seen the number at 146, um, the vast majority of whom were teenage women who did not speak English, were killed when a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory, a sweatshop where they worked. Uh, quote, it is remembered as one of the most infamous incidents in American industrial history as the deaths were largely preventable. Most of the victims died as a result of neglected safety features and locked doors within the factory building. So um, the protesters, by picking that site, it's implied is that they're trying to draw parallels between, you know, abusive, unsafe working conditions, um, especially in fields that are largely occupied by women and immigrant women at that. Uh, so some very poignant things there and a lot of things I didn't know about before. Wow, that's bananas. Yeah. <laughs> Not saying, like, you only get paid for yeah. 13 hours because they're basically saying, well, why should we pay you to sleep and to eat? Is that mm -hmm. the gist of it? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't do so much research into why that rule was created, but essentially, yeah, it's, that's what it sounds like. Um, but then it's also, like, it's, like, the sleep doesn't have to be all in one. It's, yeah, but, like, if you're required to be there, you should be paid. Like, I don't, it's so crazy to me. You are paid for your time. Yes. You like, are paid for your time. Like, I've had jobs where, like, if you're manning a station, like, you're physically available. Because in the when you have somebody that needs round-the-clock round care, something could happen at any point in those 24 hours mm -hmm. and you would have to get your ass up and do something to help that person. That is mm -hmm. still work. You yep. are making yourself available and you're taking yourself out of your own family situation or your own home to perform a function. So to be like, you're not going to pay them. That's, that's disgraceful. Yeah. I feel like that's a change too, because I, Obviously, I work um, at a health science college, so many of my students have uh, previously worked as home health aides, and I know the different agencies have different rules. So one thing about this that I that I know from the past is like the rules are not very clear. You know, there are some that do pay, there are some that don't. So I understand why this protest is necessary, but the reality is, what happens to the workers within 
that time frame as well. You know, you can only do so much work before you need a break. You need to rest. You need to, and many home health, health care aides are there overnight in the early morning, in the late night, you know, to make sure their patients are cared for at the essential hours. And that's something that I think that people don't really consider. You know, you can't just get up and leave, you know, in the middle of the night when your patient has morning care rituals that they need to do. They need to take their medication and be clean. They need to do have their food. And that can last all the way to the evening, which is way past an, a normal eight hour shift that anybody would take. You know, so in my experience with home health care workers, they often put in more time based on the needs of the patient and they get very um, attached to them. You know, they're very connected. They're literally helping these people stay alive. So we should not put any sort of uh, restraints or restrictions on what that care looks like. If we're really going to do it, then let's do it for real. And let's protect the people that's actually doing this, because all of us at one point of our life will need some help from someone else. And it's these people who dedicate their life and their career and their time to saving the lives of others, simply just being a part of their life by any means necessary. Yeah, absolutely, Teresa. And, you know, you mentioned how their their work will often, you know, like the 24-hour work rule, uh, or the, sorry, the 13-hour work rule that I mentioned, um, I guess, of course, would be the minimum right allowable so if I, it's good to hear that there are some companies that don't you know i think that's it's good to remember that it's not you know they're not all like evil <laughs> companies that are abusing um their workers out time and pay um that being said it does you know sound like even though those 24 hour shifts are supposed to have you know 5 hours of uninterrupted sleep it's, you know, just like you said, it, it's how can you guarantee that someone would get that, right? Like if, if they're, char- if the person they're in charge of needs their help more, like within that time, what are they going to do? Just say no, like, <laughs> and it, exactly. you know, and they should, yeah, like, and so that's time that they're, you know, they're not even getting the breaks they need on top of the fact that they should be getting paid anyway, if they're required to be somewhere, um, And it also reminds me, Jasmine, you often bring up that idea of um, the way we treat people whose jobs are like caregivers in that way, or, and often it's traditionally like female work that, um, you know, you should, you should work. We don't have enough to pay you, but you still need to do this work, right? Like that sort of mentality. Well, I'm very flattered that you remember (laughs) the things that I say, because I sure as shit do not remember. I was about to repeat it. So I'm glad I said it it before. No, say it again. Say it again. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking about how like a lot of our laws about um, minimum wages and what types of work it doesn't apply to. A lot of like if you go back to like a lot of the New Deal legislation, it was like, well, this, this, this and that, except for tipped workers, except for farm workers, Mm -hmm. except for people in these types of fields. And it's not a coincidence that it tends to be work that's seen as um, woman's work, work that's seen as stuff that Black people do, that immigrants do. It's like codified in the law that it's acceptable to pay these people like a pittance for work that is often backbreaking, but it's also really like the backbone. Like at the end of the day, like Teresa was saying, everyone at some point in your life you go through a stage 
where that's what you need. You need someone to be a caregiver, but because it's so tied to what you associate with unpaid, usually women's labor or labor that's done by women of lower socioeconomic classes or certain races, it's ingrained in the law that it's okay to not pay them. Like their time literally does not count the way it would if they were a white man, for example. You know, and you see it with like people that work in farms that pick our food and things like that. It's the same non-logic that really needs to get the hell out of here. It's not, it's unacceptable. Absolutely. And one thing this pandemic has shown us is that we all need more help than we can even imagine. You know, the thing about home health care aids that has really sticks out to me that I see in a lot of my students, you know, it's like a first uh, step in the medical field. A lot, many people move on from that career to go on and do, you know, greater fets to help more people and to be more established because the work is not considered as professional. But the reality is they're like literally on the front line every day of their life when they go into these people's apartments and, you know, they practically live with their patients. So the reality is this is someone who's dedicating not only their career, their time, their life, their energy and their vulnerability to whatever they're susceptible to in helping these people, you know, so we definitely need to reconsider, um, their work and they definitely need to be respected for the energy and time and care that they provide. You don't need a hospital to care for a patient. Yeah. Like and home, being cared for in your home, I think is a right that everybody should have, you know, you shouldn't have to necessarily leave your home and go somewhere else but there's enough resources for it to be something where the people who do that necessary work are paid fairly for it and treated with decency and respect. And this, the, this is, I'm glad you talked about this, Emily, because I, I knew it was bad. I did not know it was that bad. That's wild. Yeah. And I, it's wild and it's like, not like the only reporting on this protest was in AM New York. Like, it it was not I, I haven't seen like very much reporting at all in recent days of, about it. Like online, I tried to Google it to like find corroborating like reporting on it to make sure it wasn't just like, you know, not a real story. And the only thing I found was like a, there was like a, a New York state public official who had tweeted out about the article like, you know, that was there at the event. Um, and it's it's underreported. It really is. It's It's a shame. The strategic. That's that bullshit. Um, hopefully we'll see some changes um, to this, you know, to this industry and to um, help them so that they can have a more equitable existence in their work. Definitely important. All right. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break in honor of Women's History Month. This first record comes from a jazz genius, one of my favorite Um, This track is actually there was a period of time, short little antidote about this track. I was looking for it. Okay, I've played this artist on the show before, but I was looking for this song because there was a period for me in undergrad where I only listened to jazz music for like a whole year. Like I just was like no musical words. I don't know. I was on one. But um, and I found this this incredible woman. Her name is Jerry Allen. She's a black female jazz pianist. She's played with the greats and she her body of work 
uh, encompasses all different types of jazz. So if you get a chance, check her out. This track is actually from her first album and it's called The Gathering. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. So information for this news story has been drawn from an article on usatoday.com. The authors are Crystal Hayes, Grace Hawk, and Clarissa Baker. And also from the newyorktimes.com, the author is Tim Arango. The judge overseeing the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin charged in the death of George Floyd reinstated a third-degree murder charge in the case today, paving the way for the trial to proceed as scheduled. Third-degree murder was the first charge Mr. Chauvin faced last year when he was fired from the Minneapolis Police Department and arrested um, on May 25th. Chauvin is also charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter in the death of Floyd, and prosecutors contend that he was that Floyd was killed by Chauvin's knee compressed against his neck for more than nine minutes while he was handcuffed and pinned to the pavement. The decision was a victory for prosecutors who had sought to restore the charges against him. The addition gives prosecutors another avenue for conviction, but with a shorter sentence. Within days of Chauvin's arrest, he agreed to plead guilty to third-degree murder, but William P. Barr, then the U.S. Attorney General, stepped in to reject the agreement, which had also included an assurance that Chauvin would not face federal civil rights charges. On Wednesday, the Minnesota Supreme Court declined to take up the appeal filed by Eric Nelson, Chauvin's attorney, seeking to overturn a state court of appeals ruling that ordered Judge Peter Cahill, or Cahill, who is the one overseeing the trial, to reconsider the third-degree murder charge in the case. The appellate court 
then issued a final ruling and sent the issue back to Cahill, who heard arguments on it this morning. Cahill threw out the charges in the fall and declined to reinstate it last month, arguing that the statute requires a fatal action to be, quote, imminently dangerous to others, end quote. He said, the evidence presented by prosecutors so far has only shown that Chauvin's actions were imminently dangerous to Floyd. Nelson pointed to Cahill's past rulings and argued the case cited in the appellate court decision ordering a judge to reconsider the charge. And in fact, that Chauvin was factually different from the circumstances around Floyd's surrounding Floyd's death. So the previous, the, the next segment of the story is about the previous charge that the judge had ruled on. In that case, former Minneapolis police officer Mohammed Noor was convicted of third degree murder and manslaughter in the 2017 shooting death of a woman who had approached his squad car, making a 911 call about a possible sexual assault behind her home. The Court of Appeals last month rejected Nord's effort to have his conviction thrown out, a ruling that established third-degree murder as precedent and led prosecutors in the Chauvin case to reinstate the charge. This, this is a quote um, from Nelson. He said, this is not factually a similar case. This is a distinguishable case. Factually, there is no instrumentality here over Mr. Chauvin's knee, which is not inherently dangerous. So I brought that up just to talk about like, you know, the previous case, the woman um, was suspected of having a gun where Chauvin only had his knee, uh, which was one of the things that were different, but they were trying to show some similarity anyway. But Cahill stated that although Noor and Chauvin cases were different, Noor was convicted of killing someone with a gun and Chauvin is accused of killing someone with his knee. The appellate court had decided that, quote, single acts directed at a single person fall within the gamut of third degree murder. The judge noted Chauvin has the right to ask for additional time to prepare prepare defense, but Nelson indicated he was ready to move forward with jury selection. Prosecutors have repeatedly raised concerns about Cahill's decision to move forward with the jury selection in the case without clarity of the charges, citing concerns the case would later be thrown out in appeal. By end of proceedings today, six jurors have been chosen. A few seemed eager others fearful, some expressing safety concerns about serving on such a high-profile and divisive case, especially if their identity became public. Many had established clear opinions on the event that led to Chauvin's arrest, but some didn't follow the specifics to what led to Floyd's death and ensuing protests and riots all over the world. Five potential jurors were dismissed, including two people of color. Juror number 37, a black woman, told the court the viral bystander video of Floyd crying out to his mother while being pinned to Chauvin's knee had been personally traumatizing and had left her unable to give the former officer the presumption of innocence granted by the law. She said, I can't unsee the video. And so the court obviously suggested that she was not a good um, potential juror. Another potential juror who identified as Hispanic likened the footage of Chauvin atop Floyd of imagery to World War II, telling the court he believed the black man had been treated worse than an enemy of combat. Still, the man, identified as court juror number 39, insisted he could put his strong opinions aside and vote to acquit Chauvin if that's what the evidence presented in the and the court proved it. He stated, if I couldn't imagine myself saying not guilty, I wouldn't be here, the man said. 
Six members of the jury have been seated in the trial so far. Three white men, a Hispanic man, a multiracial woman, and a black man. And a pace that has been faster than expected. All appear to be in their 20s and 30s. The court seeks to impanel 12 jurors and up to four alternatives. Jury selection continues Friday and opening arguments in the case are scheduled to be de- begin no later than March 29th. So that is my recap. Um, my initial thoughts on this story as I've been researching and watching it on the news all week are the semantics in this case, right? Like the way that it is being presented, you know, the difference between first, second and third degree murder, which I obviously have never really looked into, um, which is interesting because, you know, as long as I've been doing social justice, reading the laws and understanding them is the real work, right? So third degree murder, um, which is interesting, is only a charge that was brought up in, I think, four states, Minneapolis being one of them. And it has very specific ramifications if the person's um, actions were of harm to other people, to multiple people. Whereas, you know, in this case, this man's knee on this man's neck was what killed him. But could his actions be considered harmful to others is what this this whole thing was about. Um, I definitely think it's a good thing that the judge decided to include this charge because a lot of times in charges with police violence, one of the reasons it doesn't go over is because the charges are too, um, they have the semantics of the charge has a little too much like specific. It's like they overcharge on yeah. purpose sometimes because like you can't, if you're like first degree or something, you have to then the burden of proof is so high that they exactly. planned it, that the person ends up getting off. And no one believes that a police officer plans a death, you know, unless they have, you know, even with, I'm not going to say unless I'm going to say, even with the presentation that this person was possibly racist racist or prejudiced before the incident it's very hard to prove that that's why they killed the person that they're dealing with. So the inference on this third degree murder charge is actually uh, a good thing because it gives an opportunity for a person to be convicted without having all the ramifications of the other charges, though he may get less time. I think I read somewhere that the minimum for this charge was 24 years um, but that may be have that may have changed over the years. I, don't quote me on that. But it's very interesting to see how the semantics are playing such a big role in this case, and also how the jurors are just like, no, I can't unsee this. I can't judge this man because of the trauma that I witnessed when I watched it. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you you can get so bogged down, right? Because it's. The legal system is like, it doesn't always, like there's right and there's wrong, right? Like we know this, we, there's video evidence that this, this, you know, Chauvin did this fucked up thing. Um, and, but like, you know, proving that in court, like it's all the semantics that go into proving that in the legal system can really, if you did believe that it was meant to actually create justice right um it would strain that belief just because of all the systems in place to me this system was designed to protect a certain group of people you know so the semantics 
are really it. Like us not really understanding the level of these charges and how they play out. You know, uh, you yeah. know, Ben Carson is awesome. He's he's incre- included all of us in his understanding of how these things happen and, and made us a little bit more um, interested, if you will, on mm-hmm. what the charges actually mean. Mm-hmm. But these clear semantics, first, second, th- third degree, right. will change the whole outcome of this trial. I mean, hopefully, yeah. a global trial right. at that, you know? Right. It was also really interesting to hear about the idea of like, is his knee a weapon or not? Right. Or like, right. or right. That, that was very interesting too. like how someone's and, but whether it would be a threat to other people exactly, and how that changes in different contexts is like very like on a different plane of thought than like, yeah, <laughs> right. Like it's a plane of thought that you thought, like, I would never think that that would be a question that anyone would ask. Right. It's, it's interesting. It's weird. But the bottom line is if he used it against one man, why wouldn't he use it against another? This was the first charge that he was willing to admit to that. He went and said, yeah, I did that shit. And then they threw it out. They threw it out for it to be brought back again and appealed for it to be considered. And now is, probably the thing that's going to get us the farthest in this case i really feel that i don't have it in me at any point in my life from this point on to really sit and wait for the outcome of some verdict because this has happened so many times it's happened before i was born it's happened when i was a little kid and i was too small to understand what was going on like with Rodney King and things like that. It happened with Trayvon. It happened with Philando Castile. It, and it's really to the point where even if this person, even if um, Chauvin was convicted and sent away, it would be such a drop in the bucket. And then ultimately, like, is that really justice anyway? It doesn't bring the person back. It doesn't fix the system. If anything, it would probably make people forget how corrupt it is because they feel like well it worked this time so yeah like the system is working like it's hard for me to articulate like just the extent to which I'm just fed up and I'm sick of the way that black people's lives like our lives are so trivialized and reduced to being like basically like a logic puzzle of you know, let's play this word game and figure out, like, if we decide to count this person's life as having meant something, and I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of it, like, I'm sick of it, I'm probably not, I'll know what the outcome of the trial is eventually, but I, I totally understand what to say at this point. Yeah, no, I totally understand, and, you know, like I said, over the years of all the social justice work I've done, you know, breaking down the laws, which a lot of our predecessors of social justice, specifically one of my favorites, Angela Davis, tells us to do, right? Read this shit, understand what the fuck and how they're using it against you, because that's the only way to figure it out. That's the only way to get out of it. And this is the first time I literally went to go check. What is third degree murder? Like, what does that mean? Um, This story caused me to have a better understanding of the semantics of the justice system that has held us back so long. You know, I think definitely in memory of our ancestors, which is all these fallen black people, we as activists or just fucking humans that care about humanity, that uproared when the world did last year in regards to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, 
right? Because we reported on all of these stories on our, our show. Um, the more we understand, I feel like the better we can fight, you know? And, and the more we understand the semantics that were designed for us not to understand them, maybe we'll have better outcomes. So I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> Thanks for listening to me, guys. But please follow this case because we need to know how this pans out. And we're in a different, I, I want to believe we're in a different space right now in the world where just the very bottom line truth is what matters. All right. I think that's a good cause for the pause. We're going to hop into our next music track. This track um, is a classic. This song is called Murder She Wrote. And it is about it is by Shaka Demas and Pliers. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. I know this little girl, her name is Maxine. Her beauty's like a bunch of rose. If I ever tell you about Maxine, you only say I don't know what I know. But murder she wrote. Murder she wrote. Murder she wrote. Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will hop right into our international news segment. Jasmine, you're up to the mic. All right. So this is actually an opinion piece that was written for Al Jazeera. And the authors are Bubakar Boris Diop, who is a Senegalese novelist and journalist, and Musa Sene Absa, who is a Senegalese filmmaker. And the title of the piece is Senegal. Impunity from Macky Sall's regime must end. And this is posted on Al Jazeera. So I'm going to just dive right in and read um, an abridged version of the opinion piece. Since the arrest of leading opposition politician Usman Sanko on March 3rd, Senegal has been gripped by unprecedented popular protest. Rather than listen to the demands of the largely peaceful protest movement, the government has set out to crush it using all the means at its disposal, arbitrary arrests, the use of live ammunition, and the deployment of marauding militias. In February, Sonko, president of the opposition PASTEF party, or which stands for Patriots of Senegal for Work, Ethics, and Fraternity, 
was accused of rape and making death threats by an employee of a beauty parlor and has been subsequently stripped of his parliamentary immunity by an ad hoc commission dominated by pro-government MPs or um, members of parliament. Hopes of a just resolution to the allegations were dashed when, en route to court, Sanko was arbitrarily arrested and placed in police custody for, quote, disturbing public order. That was the last straw. Public anger erupted, setting the country ablaze. Rampant youth unemployment, growing inequality, corruption scandals compounded by repressive measures amid the COVID-19 pandemic, are at the root of growing public anger. We are seeing a fed up population taking to the streets to reject the country's ruling political class. Since February, hardly a day has passed without the police raiding and arresting PESTEF activists, members of the Front for a Popular Anti-Imperialist and Pan-African Revolution Movement, or FRAP, and other political figures. Numerous human rights organizations have sounded the alarm with Amnesty International calling on Senegalese authorities to stop arbitrary arrests of opponents and activists, respect freedom of peaceful assembly and freedom of expression, and shed light on the presence of men armed with clubs alongside the security forces. Additionally, torture, a tool of colonial repression maintained by every regime since independence, has again reared its ugly head. Kadidiatu Nduk Feig, director of the notorious Cape Manuel prison, appeared to confirm as much when she said on March 4th that uncooperative political prisoners were being held in punitive cells where, quote, the rule is that the detainee commits suicide. In addition to restrictions of access to social media, Confirmed by the cybersecurity monitor NetBlocks, the authorities have shut down several private television and radio stations. Numerous videos shared on social media show security forces pursuing unarmed protesters amid the sound of gunfire. In some regions, the Senegalese state has called in the army. So far, at least 10 people have been killed and hundreds seriously injured. On March 5th, after the third day of mobilization called by the Ionamar or Fed Up Collective, Interior Minister Antoine Félix Diom released a statement confirming President Macky Sall's determination to stop at nothing. Mr. Diom characterized the violence as terrorists and said demonstrators were manipulated by occult forces. Since its independence, Senegal has won powerful allies, foremost among them France, which have supported successive regimes, turning a blind eye to authoritarianism and human rights violations. The image of a quote-unquote model democracy, an island of stability in the restive Sahel region, carved by the country's first president, Leopold Sédar Senghor, himself the head of a single-party regime repressing the opposition, still resonates internationally. The country opened up to a multi-party system in the 1980s and went through two transitions of power in 2000 and 2012. But President Abdoulaye Wade, 
2000 to 2012, and now Maki Sao since 2012. Once opponents have both followed in their authoritarian predecessors' footsteps. Indeed, Maki Sao has failed to investigate a corruption scandal revealed in 2019 by BBC in which British Petroleum allegedly agreed to, play, to pay $10 billion for a suspicious Senegalese gas deal involving Maki Sao's own brother. Now that Senegal's democratic charade has been finally exposed in front of the world's cameras, impunity from Maki Sao's regime in the court of international opinion must end. In 2018, the Economic Community of West African States Court of Justice condemned the state of Senegal for violating the rights of the former mayor of Dakar and main presidential contender, Khalifa Sal, who was found guilty of embezzlement and imprisoned in 2017. Amid the country's current political crisis, the United Nations called on all actors to exercise restraint and calm. In the wake of the scale of the regime's repression, mere declarations are no longer enough. We demand full accountability and justice for the crimes committed before Senegalese and international courts. And this um, was co-signed by over uh, by a hundred signatories who are um, Senegalese artists and cultural workers. Um, and once again, that was Senegal impunity for Macky Sall's regime must end at aljazeera.com, written up by Boubacar Boris Diop and Musa Sine Absa. Um, so yeah, and just to recap, Usman Sanko is the person who he's the main person that a lot of these protests are centered around. He's age 46 and is an opposition politician who came to prominence during the 2019 presidential election. He only got 15% of the vote and finished third, but he made many speeches condemning government corruption and poverty, which struck a chord with many Senegalese citizens. And that's from AP News, um, Why Senegal Protesters Are Clashing with Police by Krista Larson. Yeah, another story just showing the how colonialism has shaped so much of this world and continues to shape things. Um in a, in a negative way, like how much it's, it's, it's created these situations where, or legacies of, of oppression, holding onto power and things like that. It, it feels like every day there's always some massive crisis and abuse of power happening somewhere in the world. And it can be overwhelming to try to keep up with it. But I did see a lot on social media about what was happening in Senegal. And it's just any form of like government repression, like trying to stop people from speaking freely. It just seems like these types of groups are getting more and more emboldened. Like there's more and more states that are feeling like they're, it's okay to attack their own citizens just for expressing dissent or from dis like, because they are dissenting. And it's, um, to be blunt, it makes me very afraid. You know, like it's happening here, but it just, I feel like there's this global escalation of like shooting people down, calling in 
the state to crush your own people for just saying they don't agree with what's going on. It's like all these people are in the street protesting because they believe that this leader is not for them. And instead of listening to the people and let, instead of listening to the people who this person is supposed to govern or represent, the state is listening to this person because of their power or their influence or what they've done before. Um, is and it's, it's scary, you know, because at the end of the day, to speak out against injustice, you're basically putting your life on the line. That's the scariest part to me. Yeah, like I think um, the thing about this story that disturbed me, one of the things that disturbed me the most was the fact that um, Sanko is being accused of rape by a beauty salon worker and I don't like the way that um I I am always inclined to believe like when those types of allegations come up I will err on the side of believing the person who is making the complaint and I would hate to think that it was somehow like made up or orchestrated by some other force but I feel like ultimately that's not the point like if the point is that you have a corrupt president and you have a corrupt government and there's all this you know dirt happening behind the scenes and people are being repressed it's not about the the one messenger who may have been seen as like the spokesperson for that issue even if he is um someone who like let's say he is guilty of that crime and should answer for that crime that doesn't then excuse all the things that he was calling out that are happening from the government. And I don't like, I hate to think of what it might feel like to be the young woman who came forward and shared that these things had happened to her. You know, like I hope that she's not like, I can only imagine like what must be going on for her emotionally right now. But it's just so ugly what some people might resort to or how they will try to distort things, you know, in order to maintain the status quo or like trying to maybe use this as a reason to have doubt on other accusers that come forward or to minimize the major structural issues that were being pointed out, which shouldn't happen at all. I'll keep our Instagram and also our Facebook updated with links about what's going on so people can try to stay informed on how this story develops. But hopefully now that there's more international attention, the sitting president will be under pressure to step down because it, it just, it sounds like it's just getting uglier by the day. Like when you start calling in the army to start attacking and shooting down your own people because they don't agree with you or they're just stating facts about how you're mishandling funds it's um like there's really no excuse for that regardless of what you know the person who's pointed it out is accused of or might be guilty of like it still remains that what you're doing is not right and the response is not proportionate your point about how um so it's the opposition leader who was accused of rape. Is that right, Jasmine? That is correct. Yeah. So he was a popular opposition leader that was calling out government corruption and mm-hmm. et cetera. And a lot of it, what he was saying struck a chord with a lot of people mm-hmm. within the country. And so 
the idea is that it seems as though very conveniently like these charges have come up and that be, because if he goes away for this, he will be banned from running for president mm -hmm. like he had before. And there's a history of that happening in this country where people who seem like they, they got some juice and they might be able to go against like the establishment leader, mm -hmm. like all of a sudden they have some charges against them and they're put away. Yeah. So, you know, but of course, you know, we know like how rampant sexual violence mm -hmm. is. Like I never would want to say or suggest that it isn't true, but yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I think, I think you were, you were saying this, but, um, I think that's a really important idea that we, at least in the U S aren't very good at holding on to is that it's, it, we shouldn't, like if we if we hate the establishment, we know you know we want to change what's going on. I think very often we latch on to an individual person, right? To who right. represents the things we believe in. But it's it's you have to remember that it's not that person. That's the person should not be held up to, you know, um, a higher standard than the fact that they're just a person who also agrees with the same things you agree, right? Like I think that we get into a lot of trouble when we put all of our hopes and dreams into one person, uh, when we believe that they're infallible. Um, so, right. I think, yeah, it, it, at the end of the day, um, right. We, you know, I, I'm with you, Jasmine, I'm inclined to like, you know, when women speak up, you know, prove to me it didn't happen. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it, I'm not again, you know, it certainly in the, um, Russian politics right now, the opposition guy is always, it seems like there's constantly <laughs> things cropping up against him that seem to be a little too conveniently placed. So, uh, that I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the world, but again, um, it's important not to attach all of our belief systems onto individual human beings. I think that is a very interesting takeaway for sure. Yeah. It's not about him. It's about what the message, you know, it's not so much the messenger. It's all of the problems that he was giving voice to. And it's it seems pretty clear to me just from what I've read that that's what the repression is about, you know, and they're trying to use this case as sort of like a way to slither around it. But, um, yeah, so solidarity to the people of Senegal and to the accuser. Um, I'm wishing her healing. And um, we'll see how this story develops. Like I'll put it on our Instagram at, at objection to the rule. Um, and we also have a Facebook page. So keep an eye out. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us, Jasmine. And now for our good news segment, Emily, please share with us the good news. But of course, so this is um, actually some more weird animal news since I've been on a streak recently. Um, so the story comes from a March 5th New York Times article by Leslie Evans Ogden titled Largest Glowing Shark Species Discovered Near New Zealand. The article explains, quote, as they prowl the ocean, sharks aren't just hunting. Some of them are glowing. And now researchers have identified the largest glow-in-the-dark species with a spine on land or sea that has ever been found. A study published last week in Frontiers in Marine Science established that kite fin sharks, a species that grows to almost six feet in length, emits blue-green light. 
Um, the scientists who led the month-long expedition in waters off the coast of New Zealand also expanded the scientific understanding of what makes several species of tiny, deep-swimming lantern sharks glow. The study was led by Jerome Malefet at the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium, a scientist who has built his career studying bioluminescent marine life. Uh, quote, tiny lantern sharks were already known to be luminous tricksters. Blue-green bioluminescent organs on their belly help them blend in with the bluish light from above so they can avoid detection by larger predators while possibly illuminating shrimp and squid on the seafloor, their dinner table. A glowing undercarriage also advertises reprodu reproductive organs to mates. <laughs> um, quote, chemical tests showed that shark light is regulated by the hormone melatonin. Uh, it makes us fall asleep, Dr. Malefit said, but it's lighting up the shark. Um, so listeners may remember that we recently did a weird news story on another animal that was recently discovered to glow, which is the platypus. Uh, but I do want to say these sharks are bioluminescent, which means that they, quote, produce light from a chemical reaction, while platypuses, or is it platypi, I don't know, um, are biofluorescent, which is slightly different, which means that they have proteins they, quote, have proteins that absorb energy from light and then re-emit it at a lower energy or longer wavelength. Um, and pbslearningmedia.org um, helped clarify the difference between those two. So, um, yeah, uh, anytime there is a new glowing animal out there, I will let you know about it. <laughs> Listen, I'm all for illumination. So I love these stories, Emily. That's awesome. I've never seen a glowing shark or... Yeah, only seen one yep. shark ever in real life, but that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen any sharks, and I would like for them to stay the hell away from me. You know what, Jess? Um, Don't be so scared. They're really dope, and they're dope animals. I mean, that's great, but they can stay over <laughs> there that way. I'm happy that they're glowing. Yeah, I I love sharks, but like also it's because I'm terrified of them, right? Like I love the movie Jaws. Um, I love to talk about sharks, but I do not ever want to be near one. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm attracted to that ball shit. Like, I feel like they run the ocean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're yeah. like the mayors of the ocean. And I think that's cool. Yeah. They keep everything in alignment. So, I'm all, <laughs> but you know, I'm a mermaid. So I've always been a fan of sea creatures, big, large, and in between. I love that. But I like bosses. I like the look bosses. I like shark bosses because <laughs> they keep everything together, you know, like. I don't know. Call me what you want to, but anyway, I think that's cool. I'm gonna look for a glow in the dark shark. That's some cool shit. There was this um thing at the American Museum of Natural History. I think it was that museum. I was supposed to go with my dad. I really wanted to see like their bioluminescence exhibit, but oh they didn't what? Slept. I was so excited, and I was grown. Like I was an adult. Like <laughs> yeah, dad, let's go. And it, they didn't have any tickets, so I was like, all right, let's go see the butterfly. And we went oh. to the butterfly room instead, which was been, fun. Yeah, that I know the butterfly good. room. Yeah. Yeah, one landed on my father's kangol and just Ooh. sat there. So I have a nice picture and video of like this, this little butterfly. It's like, don't move. I love that. Stay still. But yeah. Good for the sharks. I mean, it's the ocean is beautiful and it's fascinating, but a lot of that stuff, it terrifies me. Like, I'm happy to read about it, see it on a TV show. I 
Don't want to see it in IRL. No, thank you. That's completely understandable shit. It's dangerous. But me, I live for that. But anyway, thank you so much for that story, Emily. Uh, definitely cool. Shit, glow-in-the-dark sharks. It's a thing. All right, folks, that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. It comes from Kelly Rowland, dedicated to Women's History Month. This is crazy, and it's so much fun. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. 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 Have a good week. Trouble and nobody could save me. Matter what you do, you always be my baby. Even if you hurt me and you make me go ancient, 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 still my favorite. I'm a big girl, baby, I can take it. Wanna make it up, you know we both better take it. Wanna have your baby come, come. Cause your love's addicting more than a drug. When you're gone, it's like taking air from my lungs. I need you so much, it scares me. Hooked on you clearly. No matter what I do, boy, I'm full. If I'm gonna be crazy, crazy for anything, I'll be crazy for you. If I'm gonna be crazy, crazy for anything, I'll be crazy for you. If I'm gonna be crazy, crazy for anything, I'll be crazy for you. crazy. I ain't really been getting like any sleep lately. Break up, make up, relationship shake it. Hate you, love you, fuck you, pay me. All day, all night, baby. But we'll be together, well, I say maybe. Some days are cool, some days just shady. But I can't fake it, fake it, fake it. If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com forward slash City Running Tours.